Part Two, Chapter Six of In Chancery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Foresight Saga Two, In Chancery by John Galsworthy. Part Two, Chapter Six. Jolyon in Two Minds. A little private hotel over a well-known restaurant near the Gare Saint-Lazare was Jolyon's haunt in Paris. He hated his fellow Forsytes abroad, vapid as fish out of water in their well-trodden runs, the opera, Rue de Rivoli, and Moulin Rouge. Their air of having come because they wanted to be somewhere else as soon as possible annoyed him. But no other foresight came near this haunt, where he had a wood fire in his bedroom, and the coffee was excellent. Paris was always to him more attractive in winter. The acrid savor from wood smoke and chestnut roasting braziers, the sharpness of the wintry sunshine on bright rays, the open cafes defying keen-aired winter, the self-contained, brisk boulevard crowds, all informed him that in winter, Paris possessed a soul which, like a migrant bird, in high summer flew away. He spoke French well, had some friends, knew little places where pleasant dishes could be met with, queer types observed. He felt philosophic in Paris, the edge of irony sharpened. Life took on a subtle, purposeless meaning, became a bunch of flavors tasted, a darkness shot with shifting gleams of light. When in the first week of December he decided to go to Paris, he was far from admitting that Irene's presence was influencing him. He had not been there two days before he owned that the wish to see her had been more than half the reason. In England one did not admit what was natural. He had thought it might be well to speak to her about the letting of her flat and other matters, but in Paris he at once knew better. There was a glamour over the city. On the third day he wrote to her, and received an answer which procured him a pleasurable shiver of the nerves. My dear Jolyon, it will be a happiness for me to see you. Irene. He took his way to her hotel on a bright day, with a feeling such as he had often had going to visit an adored picture. No woman, so far as he remembered, had ever inspired in him the special sensuous and yet impersonal sensation. He was going to sit and feast his eyes, and come away knowing her no better, but ready to go and feast his eyes again to-morrow. Such was his feeling, when in the tarnished and ornate little lounge of a quiet hotel near the river, she came to him preceded by a small page-boy who uttered the word, Madame, and vanished. Her face, her smile, the poise of her figure, were just as he had pictured, and the expression of her face said plainly, A friend. Well, he said, what news, poor exile? None. Nothing from Soames? Nothing. I have let the flat for you, and like a good steward I bring you some money. How do you like Paris? While he put her through this catechism, it seemed to him that he had never seen lips so fine and sensitive, the lower lip curving just a little upwards, the upper touched at one corner by the least conceivable dimple. It was like discovering a woman in what had hitherto been a sort of soft and breathed-on statue, almost impersonally admired. She owned that to be alone in Paris was a little difficult, and yet 
Paris was so full of its own life that it was often, she confessed, as innocuous as a desert. Besides, the English were not liked just now. That will hardly be your case, said Jolyon. You should appeal to the French. It has its disadvantages. Jolyon nodded. Well, you must let me take you about while I'm here. We'll start tomorrow. Come and dine at my pet restaurant, and we'll go to the Opera Comique. It was the beginning of daily meetings. Jolyon soon found that for those who desired a static condition of the affections, Paris was at once the first and last place in which to be friendly with a pretty woman. Revelation was alighting like a bird in his heart, singing, Elle est en rêve, elle est en rêve. Sometimes this seemed natural, sometimes ludicrous, a bad case of elderly rapture. Having once been ostracized by society, he had never since had any real regard for conventional morality. But the idea of a love which she could never return, and how could she at his age, hardly mounted beyond his subconscious mind. He was full, too, of resentment at the waste and loneliness of her life. Aware of being some comfort to her, and of the pleasure she clearly took in their many little outings, he was amiably desirous of doing and saying nothing to destroy that pleasure. It was like watching a starved plant draw up water, to see her drink in his companionship. So far as they could tell, no one knew her address except himself. She was unknown in Paris, and he but little known, so that discretion seemed unnecessary in those walks, talks, visits to concerts, picture galleries, theatres, little dinners, expeditions to Versailles, St. Cloud, even Fontainebleau. And time fled, one of those full months without past to it or future. What in his youth would certainly have been headlong passion, was now perhaps as deep a feeling, but far gentler, tempered to protective companionship by admiration, hopelessness, and a sense of chivalry, arrested in his veins at least so long as she was there, smiling and happy in their friendship, and always to him more beautiful and spiritually responsive. For her philosophy of life seemed to march an admirable step with his own, conditioned by emotion more than by reason, ironically mistrustful, susceptible to beauty, almost passionately humane and tolerant, yet subject to instinctive rigidities of which as a mere man he was less capable. And during all this companionable month he never quite lost that feeling with which he had set out on the first day as if to visit an adored work of art, a well-nigh impersonal desire. The future, an exorable pendant to the present, he took care not to face, for fear of breaking up his untroubled manner. But he made plans to renew this time in places still more delightful, where the sun was hot and there were strange things to see and paint. The end came swiftly on the 20th of January with a telegram. Have enlisted in Imperial Yeomanry. Jolly. Jolyon received it just as he was setting out to meet her at the Louvre. It brought him up with a round turn. While he was lotus-eating here, his boy, whose philosophers and guide he ought to be, had taken this great step towards danger, hardship, perhaps even death. He felt disturbed to the soul, realizing suddenly how Irene had twined herself round the roots of his being. Thus threatened with severance, the tie between them, for it had become a kind of tie, no longer had impersonal quality. The tranquil enjoyment of things in common, Jolyon perceived, was gone forever. 
he saw his feeling as it was, in the nature of an infatuation. Ridiculous, perhaps, but so real that sooner or later it must disclose itself. And now, as it seemed to him, he could not, must not, make any such disclosure. The news of Jolly stood inexorably in the way. He was proud of this enlistment, proud of his boy for going off to fight for the country, for on Jolien's pro-Borism, too, Black Week had left its mark. And so the end was reached before the beginning. Well, luckily he had never made a sign. When he came into the gallery she was standing before the Virgin of the Rocks, graceful, absorbed, smiling and unconscious. Have I to give up seeing that, he thought. It's unnatural, so long as she's willing that I should see her. He stood, unnoticed, watching her, stirring up the image of her figure, envying the picture on which she was bending that long scrutiny. Twice she turned her head towards the entrance, and he thought, That's for me. At last he went forward. Look, he said. She read the telegram, and he heard her sigh. That sigh, too, was for him. His position was really cruel. To be loyal to his son, he must just shake her hand and go. To be loyal to the feeling in his heart, he must at least tell her what that feeling was. Could she? Would she understand the silence in which he was gazing at that picture? I'm afraid I must go home at once, he said at last. I shall miss all this awfully. So shall I, but of course you must go. Well, said Jolyon, holding out his hand. Meeting her eyes, a flood of feeling nearly mastered him. Such is life, he said. Take care of yourself, my dear. He had a stumbling sensation in his legs and feet, as if his brain refused to steer him away from her. From the doorway, he saw her lift her hand and touch its fingers with her lips. He raised his hat solemnly, and did not look back again. End of Part 2 Chapter 6 Recording by Leanne Howlett